0: 7 of 2 Samuel, you could call it the theme song of the prophets. Because in this chapter, we come to a new covenant. It's called the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God will now make with David, and it is stunning and exciting as the Lord promises to build David a house. The covenant that God is about to make with David, his servant, is is the promise on which the rest of biblical prophecy hinges from here on out. What we're going to study tonight is the place from which the rest of the prophets will draw out their messages. Now some might say, well wait a minute, I I thought Jesus was the hinge point of prophecy, and you're exactly right. Jesus is the coming king, and this chapter is about the prophecy of the coming kingdom. The kingdom cannot come without the king. The king himself will usher in the kingdom. And from here on out, we will see the prophets, one after the other, speaking of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. They can do so because of this covenant that we will read tonight, that God promises David, and again, it's exciting, it's stunning. It's been said that it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand the prophets from this point forward without understanding the context of the Davidic covenant. J. Vernon McGee said the following. He said, one of the reasons many people find themselves so hopelessly confused in the study of prophecy is because they don't pay attention to this chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is by far the most significant chapter thus far in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, we're going to see these words. In fact, it begins with these words. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 begins the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Anointed One, the Son of David. When Gabriel appeared to Mary, he said in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, "...Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David." Peter's famous sermon on the inauguration day of the church when everything began when those 3,000 people were saved the sermon that caught their attention references 2 Samuel chapter 7 as Peter said in Acts chapter 2 verse 30 David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ and indeed in the Psalms of David we see that Psalm 22, David talking about the crucifixion of Jesus in explicit terms. It's absolutely stunning. And in various other places throughout the Psalms and in the writings of David, we see this this, this focus on, this thinking, this looking toward... The resurrection of one of his descendants, the one who would sit on the throne. Paul began his landmark letter to the church at Rome, saying the following. Romans chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So you jump from 2 Samuel 7 to the New Testament, and constantly we're hearing talk about the kingdom and the son of David and Jesus Christ being that son of David. But each of the Old Testament prophets from 2 Samuel forward, will return again and again to this Davidic covenant, this promise of an eternal kingdom. And here's a quick sample for you. Jot these down. I'm just going to read through them quickly. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. By the way, you Bible students know that word branch in the Hebrew is netzer, from which the city of Nazareth gets his name. So Jesus the Nazarene is Jesus the branch. And so when the Old Testament speaks of God raising up a righteous branch, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. It's a cool little connection there. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 23.5 Isaiah 9 7, a very famous and familiar verse probably to you. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel chapter thirty-seven, verse twenty-four. He says, My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, and keep my statutes, and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers died. And they will live on it, they and their sons, and their sons' sons forever. And listen, David my servant will be their prince forever. And there are some Bible commentators, and I would agree with them, that believe that at the resurrection, that David is going to be resurrected and will serve sort of as vice president, if you will. A prince under the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel writes in verse 26 of Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. Then I will place them, multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Daniel the prophet Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 it tells us that in the days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed have we seen the kingdom of Israel destroyed in history yes this is not talking about the past it is talking about the future that kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms speaking of the kingdoms of the earth But it will itself endure forever. And the Hebrew word forever is literally translated forever. Right, good. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 21. Obadiah, actually there's only one chapter in Obadiah. But the 21st verse in that letter says, or that that book, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Micah chapter 4 verse 8 As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And so 2 Samuel, tonight as we get into it, is the theme song of the prophets. Because it's the promise of both the coming king in the coming kingdom. Let's check it out. Chapter 7, verse 1. It came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king, this is David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Our study begins tonight with David apparently at rest. He has put down the enemies of Israel for the first time in his life, at least since he was a shepherd on the hills of Bethlehem. At least in, since those pastoral days when he sat around with the sheep and wrote the 23rd Psalm and, and laid back under the stars at night and wrote the 8th Psalm. Since those days, David has not known rest. He has been a warrior, a fighter. He has known nothing but strife and turmoil. But now he's in his palace. And apparently it was a lavish and opulent palace, a beautiful palace of stone and cedar. And he's resting there, and there's peace and quiet and calm all around. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11 tells us that Hiram, king of Tyre, had sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a house for David. So he's resting in this very, very nice home. Josephus, the historian, he tells us that David amassed a substantial fortune to the point that his wealth at this time was in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. Which in those times would be incredible. Solomon would amass even more wealth. You're going to see in chapter 8 of Second Samuel how David, in putting down all the kings around him, began to receive tribute from the different kings. In fact, Hiram, the king of Tyre, when he built David's house, was doing that because he didn't want to come up against David. He wanted to be on his side. Look, I'm just going to stay up here out of your way, buddy, and I'll send you a house. How's that sound? So David is in great shape. A shepherd turned warrior king who had been fighting the past quarter century of his life finally now enters a season of rest. And a couple of things to note here. There are two great, great, great questions to ask. And the first is, what does David do with his rest? What does David do when he comes into this place of rest? You see, there's, a, there's an interesting contrast to David in Scripture. It's another king. And if you keep your finger there in 1 Samuel chapter 7, flip over to the book of Daniel chapter 4. Just start going to the right in your Bibles and you'll get there eventually. Daniel chapter 4, about verse 30. Another king had come into his own. In fact, probably the greatest world dictator of all history, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar reigned over, as as dictator, over the largest kingdom in the history of the world. And so Nebuchadnezzar is there, and he's at peace, and he's relaxed, very similar to David, he's in a season of rest. In verse 30 of Daniel chapter 4, it says, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty? The Bible tells us while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now that must have shaken Nebuchadnezzar up a bit. And truly what would happen as this man puffed up in his royal massive majesty thinking wonderful things about himself, what would happen is he will be driven mad. And for seven years, he will run about the fields of Babylon. He will hide beneath the trees. He will eat grass like the cattle. His fingernails will grow long. His hair will be matted. He'll be an absolute crazed mess for seven years until he is able to recognize that God is the majesty and the glory belongs only to God. To God the Father. Verse 34 tells us, at the end of that period, and this is Nebuchadnezzar writing, and by the way, this section of scripture in the Bible is written in Chaldean. Most of the ancient scriptures, most of the Hebrew scriptures are in Hebrew. This section here is in Chaldean, written by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar himself. He says, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an eternal, an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you ever said to God, what have you done? Well, according to Nebuchadnezzar, he needs not say that because you don't know what you're saying when you're saying to God what have you done at that time he says my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me but listen to this now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And it makes you wonder if Nebuchadnezzar himself is not saved. Because the last words we hear from Nebuchadnezzar are words of praise to the eternal God, our Father in heaven. Interesting. He does the typical thing. Nebuchadnezzar begins to think of his greatness in terms of his wealth. He, he measures himself by his wealth and his, his earthly kingdom. He's in his season of rest and he begins looking around and just thinking what a great thing he'd done and and how he'd amassed such a fortune for himself. David is completely different. When he comes into his season of rest, he begins thinking more about the Lord. He begins looking at what he has, how he's been blessed. And it fills him with a great desire to bless the Lord. And that is atypical for us, gang. For mankind, we tend to look at our blessings and want more. Whereas, David looked at his blessings and wanted to turn it back to his father. Psalm 26, verse 12, David wrote, My foot stands on a level place in the congregations. I shall bless the Lord. And so my question is, in your days of rest, are you like Nebuchadnezzar or are you like David? Do you think about all that you've gotten and think about getting just a little bit more? Or do you think of what the Lord has done for you, how He's blessed you, and think, How can I turn it back? What can I do, Lord, To bless you. What we do in our seasons of rest is a great measure of a man or a woman spiritually. Because it's one thing to come running to the Lord in the midst of crisis. It's another thing to seek the Lord in times of ease when life's going well. When it's going good. When I don't need anything. That's the test, I think, of my spirituality. Of my relationship with God. What I do in these seasons of rest. The second question, as we look at David here in his season of rest, and he's thinking about turning it back to the Lord, how can I bring blessing to the Lord? Ask this question, who is David with in his rest? Well, he's hanging out with Nathan the prophet. He's hanging out with a godly man, a spiritual brother. He has a good influence around him. Psalm 119.63 says, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. I want to be in the company of lovers of Jesus. Doesn't it do something for you to be around other believers? To talk about Jesus? And yet the opposite impact, what does it do to you to be around people who do not believe in Jesus? Who could care less about God, who really don't want to hear you talking about Him. One builds up, the other tears down. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. So in times of kicking back and seasons of rest and relaxation, what do you do? And who are you with? I hear people sometimes say, you know, I spent a hard week, I'm going to take Sunday off. And i, I got to tell you honestly The first thing that pops into my mind is well, I'm glad God doesn't take Sunday off <laughs> Granted the Lord wants us to have days of rest And He wants us to have times of peace And when people say that I'm going to take Sunday off I'm going go to the beach this Sunday Or I'm going to go be in my shop or I'm going to work on my car I need to have some me time I, I, You know, So I'm not going to be there this Sunday well, Just see you later and, and honestly gang And I mean this I personally believe that that can be fine That you can be with the Lord While you're washing the car that you can meet with the Lord on the beach on a Sunday morning. I wouldn't advise it at this time of year. It's a little chilly out there. <laughs> and you can go work in your shop and meditate and spend time with the Lord. And I would never say that someone's not doing that. But 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 here's the thing. Isn't it true when we take time off from church that we're often taking time off from God? That the truth is when we get out in a way, I'm just going to go for a long drive that a lot of times what happens is our minds drift off into so many other places and we're not really with the Lord. Who are you with in your times of leisure? What do you do? You alone know your heart. But David is looking around his plush palace and he's considering the simple and austere tabernacle, that tent of meeting, curtains surrounding the Ark of the Covenant, which he gloriously brought into Jerusalem in chapter 6. We read about that on Sunday and he begins thinking and says you know I've got this beautiful cedar and stone house and God's ark is dwelling in a tent I want to build him a house he gets this in his heart in his mind it's a great idea and he checks it with a solid believer he goes to Nathan and says hey what do you think about this my house God's tent how about we what do you think and Nathan says go for it Dave your heart's right there obviously God is with you God has blessed you obviously this is a good thing where your heart is is a good place right now, David. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. And David's delight at this time is with the Lord. And so Nathan says to him, You're, you're, you're right. Go for it. Do it. All systems are go. Until God sounds the all stop. Until the Lord says, new." No. Whoever said I needed a house. Verse 4. In the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar indeed I went back and just did a quick study Now I could have missed something but I don't think I did I went back and studied through this week to find is there anywhere before this moment where God said build me a temple and there's not David has the idea for the first time it comes up I want to build the Lord a house His intention was good It came from right motives He had talked to A godly brother about it It just wasn't what the Lord wanted him to do That ever happened to you? you ever find yourself in that place Where you make a great plan for the Lord You're going to bless Him Because you just know That this ministry Is what He's called you to And you start trying to go down that road And every door slams in your face until so you stop and say, Lord, my whole life has been prepared for this ministry. And the Lord's saying, No, it hasn't. Well, yes, it has, Lord. No, it really hasn't. No, yeah, it has. I've been here living my life. I know what's best for me. I want to do this for you, Lord. It's funny what what is important for me, how I can rephrase that to This is for you, Lord. I want to do this for you. No, it's really all about me. But I want to say it's for you. And he's saying, you know what? Hang on there. This is not what I want from you. I have a different plan for you all together. We get all excited about plans for the Lord. You might even go and ask the pastor's advice. And the pastor says, go for it. You might have someone prophesy over you saying, go do all that is in your mind. The Lord is with you like Nathan did. But as you go forward... The door slams shut. Notice here that the prophet Nathan is incorrect. Verse 3. Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan was a prophet of the Lord God, a good prophet, but Nathan was wrong. Nathan missed it. Now I know there's got to be at least one person out there who's thinking, Wait a minute. Didn't we study in Deuteronomy that if a prophet was wrong, he was not to be trusted at all? Well, let me read you that passage, and thank you for asking. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Well, Nathan doesn't die. In fact, apparently Nathan's all right after this story. So how do we square this with Nathan's false prophecy? And the way I see it is this. Nathan wasn't prophesying at all. He was giving advice to a friend. He never says Thus saith the Lord He never says This is the Lord's plan for you Go for it Yes God blesses this All he says is Go do all that's in your mind For the Lord is with you The Lord was with David So Nathan as a friend is going Sounds good to me That sounds like a great idea Go for it David Do it Take it on He wasn't speaking in God's name He was speaking in Nathan's name And he was just giving advice from himself He knew that God was with David so they figured, yeah, why not? Build it. Listen, just because someone happens to be a pastor or a prophet or a godly man or woman in your life does not mean that whatever they speak is God's truth. Don't assume that it is. Oftentimes we can get godly sounding advice from friends or family members who don't have to walk out the fallout that we will. And they say, yeah, it's a great idea. And then they go on about their lives while we're sitting there picking up pieces. Don't assume it's truth just because a godly person says it. Paul was often careful to write, I say this, not the Lord. You can find that in his letters. Or, the Lord declares, not me, but the Lord says this. Making it very clear what is from God and what is on occasion not, he delineates between God's words and his words. And Paul will write in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 20, Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And by the way, those of you with a prophetic gifting, you need to be cautious as well. Please be careful throwing around your thus saith the Lord. God told me to tell you this. You better be sure. Otherwise we're going to kill you. Moving on. (laughs) lord comes and generously and graciously he corrects nathan's error saying hey i never asked anybody for anything other than the tabernacle and i wonder i think there's something here i think god kind of liked the tabernacle i think he liked the mobility of it i think god liked the fact that his tabernacle could be placed right in the middle of the people the lord wants to be with his people And the great thing about the journey of Israel was the Lord was able to move the tabernacle to wherever the people were and sit right in the middle. You know, they camped out around the tabernacle in four different directions, north, south, east, and west. And it was awesome because wherever you were in Israel, when you walked out of the entrance of your tent in the morning, you could look toward the tabernacle, you could see the light, the fire in the sky, or or the cloud by day, and know the Lord was with you. And I think God really liked that. He wanted that for his people. And a short thousand years after this moment, John writes in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what that word dwelt means. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent right here among us. And the tabernacle, it foreshadowed a greater tent in which God would come to meet his people. Not a tabernacle of linen, but a tabernacle of flesh in the person of Jesus Christ God likes tabernacles well verse 8 he goes on he's talking to Nathan he says now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David thus says the Lord of hosts I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel why is he pointing this out because I think the Lord is saying David I want you to consider your background and really think about the training that I gave you I didn't train you as a builder. I didn't train you as an architect. I trained you as a shepherd. And my call for you is to shepherd my people Israel, not to be about building temples or houses. Verse 9 going on, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. You see what God is doing here? He's saying no to David, but he's blessing David at the same time. To the point that when David finally responds, he's so overwhelmed with joy, he's not disappointed that his plans are not going to be done. What a good God we have. Verse 10, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Now pay close attention to this. In verse 10, there are two times the Lord says, I will. The two I will statements of God here. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them in their own place and they won't be disturbed again. God doesn't say, I have done this. Now remember, we're at David's zenith as as a king. I mean, this is a good time. Things are solid. Israel is established, but God isn't saying, I've done it. He's saying, I will do it. I have not done it yet. Not, I have appointed a place, I have planted them, but I will. It's a kingdom promise for a kingdom that is yet to come, not the kingdom that currently existed under David in this moment. But watch this. Verse 11, he says, Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel... And I will give you rest from all your enemies The Lord declares to you That the Lord will make a house for you You wanted to make me a house David That's great I appreciate your heart It's not what I've called you to But I'll tell you what I am going to do I'm going to build you a house I'm going to make you a house And this verse is the key literally I will make you a house David already has a house He's got a house of cedar and stone A pretty nice place a place to kick off his shoes and relax and enjoy life. That's why he started thinking about this whole thing in the first place. But as we'll see, David realizes this is the stuff of prophecy, a, a promise far beyond the now. In fact, let's go beyond the now. Let's jump 400 years. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33 in your Bibles. Jeremiah 33. The Lord in this chapter, Jeremiah 33, will reconfirm the Davidic covenant that Nathan brought to David in the first place. Now Jeremiah is going to speak it again as the Lord brings it through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. Let me just read through this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Days are coming. Remember, 400 years after the first time the Davidic covenant is spoken. Days are coming, says the Lord. When I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch, Netzer, Nazarene. I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he, by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord If you can break my covenant for the day And my covenant for the night So that day and night will not be at their appointed time Well then my covenant may also be broken With David my servant So that he will not have a son to reign on his throne And with the Levitical priests my ministers As the host of heaven cannot be counted And the sand of the sea cannot be measured So I will multiply the descendants of David my servant And the Levites who minister to me And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them? Thus they despise my people. No longer are they a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will, he says, I will restore their fortunes. I will have mercy on them and understand the hearers of this covenant confirmation were at this point in captivity in Babylon. They weren't even at a place of rest when the Lord reconfirms this Davidic covenant. This is coming. I will do this. Now Jesus, that righteous branch that's raised up, He came into the world. He was born a babe in Bethlehem. He grew up in front of man and God. And He hit about His 30th birthday and began His public ministry. And the question I have for you is as we look at what was told to Jeremiah, In those days of that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Did Jesus execute justice and righteousness on the earth the first time He came? Did Israel dwell after that time securely? A, a, a mere 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Jerusalem fell in a horrific attack by Rome. This covenant is yet to come. This covenant has not yet occurred as we look at history and we understand it in the context of truth. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Whether it's here through the prophet Nathan, or later through Jeremiah, or later on in Scripture, the Lord says, I will, I will, I will do this. Now verse 12. Still the Lord is telling Nathan what he's going to tell David. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your descendant, literally seed, after you. Who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever forever and in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Who is he talking about? Who is the seed of David that he's talking about? Now, think about this for a moment. Don't be too quick to jump to an answer. Solomon is the son of David who would build the house, who would build the temple. And Solomon certainly believed that this prophecy about David's seed who would build a house and who would be disciplined by the Lord? Solomon believed, oh, that's me. Of course it's me. In fact, First Kings 18, verse 17. Solomon, at the time of the building of the temple, he said, It was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, But your son, who will be born to you, He will build the house for my name. It's not exactly what the Lord said the lord said was i will raise up your seed after you then say your immediate next son is the one i'm talking about here but solomon said "Hey, now it's got to be me nevertheless you shall not build the house the lord solomon is now quoting you shall not build the house but your son who will be born to you he will build the house for my name And the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, Solomon said. For I have risen in the place of my father David and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, prophecy fulfilled. From Solomon's perspective, from where he sat on the throne of Israel in Israel's glory days, the prophecy was fulfilled. Never mind the fact that Solomon didn't quite get the entire geography that was promised to Israel remember and I know I've said this many times but God promised 300,000 square miles to Abraham and Solomon at the height of his kingdom had 30,000 so he was only 10 percent of the promise but he sat on the throne and he built the temple and said it's me that prophecy that Nathan brought to David back in in the book of Samuel chapter 7 that's me Now another proof that it could be Solomon is it says when he commits iniquity I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the son of men. Solomon certainly committed iniquity. He certainly sinned. In fact, the end of his life leaves us wondering if Solomon is saved or not because he chased after the idols of his many wives and concubines. We don't know. Solomon, though, is at best a shadowy representative of a far greater fulfillment. Primarily because as you read through this three times, the Lord uses the word forever. And forever only works if something starts and then continues forever. It doesn't work if something starts up and then falls, and then kind of starts up again and then falters again. It only works if it starts and continues on forever. Now as you may already know, Jeconiah is another problem with Solomon. Solomon claiming it's about him, well, Jeconiah, the direct descendant of Solomon's line, is so sinful, and we talked about this last week, that Jeconiah brings a curse on the line of Solomon, so that no son of Solomon could ever sit on the throne. Messing up the whole thing. If this is about Solomon having an eternal, everlasting kingdom, it can't be, because Jeconiah blows it big time. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, thus says the Lord, speaking of Jeconiah, he says, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. No man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And we talked about last week how interesting it is that if you follow the line of Solomon, David to Solomon, and then all the way down to Jesus, as you see in the book of Matthew, it ends up at Joseph. Joseph, who, if he were to be able to rise, could never sit on the throne, which means if Joseph were the literal, physical father of Jesus, Jesus could not sit on the throne either because of the curse. But Joseph wasn't Jesus' father, was he? The Lord was. If you track it to Mary, you find through a different son of David, Nathan, the line that's talked about in Luke chapter 3, resulting in Jesus, who has every right then to sit on the throne legally and spiritually. God took care of all the bases. But the bottom line is this. No everlasting kingdom can come from the seed of Solomon. All indications in this chapter, and I say all indications, point to Jesus as David's seed being referred to here in this chapter with one tiny little difficulty. Verse 14. Look at this again. The Lord says, I will be Father to him and he will be Son to me. Now that may be hard to understand, but he, he's speaking of places in the Trinity. It works perfectly. Jesus takes the role of the Son as God takes the role of Father. Not one above the other, by the way. And please don't misunderstand the Trinity is not, is not God up here and then Jesus down here somewhere and then the Holy Spirit kind of taking care of business below the two of them. It's equal. All three are God. Jesus is elevated to the place of the Father as the Father is alongside Jesus Jesus said the Father and I are one but he takes the role the position of son which in large part helps us to understand what it means to be sons and daughters of his just as we look at Jesus' life but what are we to do with this I will be father to him and he will be son to me when he commits iniquity I will correct him uh oh man he's talking about Jesus how can this be when he commits iniquity I will correct him well I thought Jesus was sinless so for this to be Jesus he would have to commit iniquity or it's not Jesus at all right? wrong this translation is a little little off literally translated this says when iniquity is committed to him read it that way When iniquity is committed to him, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. Notice the Lord doesn't say, I will correct him with my rod and give him my strokes. He says, I'm going to use the rod of men and the strokes of men. And Isaiah explains this perfectly. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows He carried, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. When iniquity is committed to Him, He will bear the rod." And Jesus did when your sin and my sin was committed to him, he was sinless, he was perfect, but he took every ounce of our sin on himself at the cross of Calvary, and there he was corrected, if you will, by the rod of men and the strokes of the Son of men as they beat him, as they whipped him, as they nailed him, and ultimately as they speared him. And it's no wonder Jesus closes out the entire Bible saying in Revelation 22, 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So as we read this, we can understand Solomon at best is a pale representation of the greater than Solomon, the greater than David, King Jesus, who I believe is absolutely being talked about here. Now look at David's response. Nathan now goes to him and shares all these things that the Lord says. I'm going to build you a house and it's going to be an eternal house and an everlasting kingdom it's going to go on forever and someone from your seat is going to sit on the throne and David, I love this, David the king went in and sat before the Lord. He just sat down. He took a seat there, the tabernacle, and just went, whoa. I get this picture of Of Mary, Martha's sister, sitting before the Lord and just listening. Just it's almost as if King David becomes little shepherd boy David on the hill again, just going, "Wow." He sat before the Lord and he said, "Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far?" And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. David gets it. This is prophecy. You took this little idea I had of, of building you a house, this tiny little insignificant thing, and you turn it into an eternal prophetic future thing. And you're blowing my mind, Lord. Mm-hmm. He says, And this is the custom of man... Oh, Lord God. What is David saying? My plans for a temporary temple are nothing compared to your plans for a future foundation, a heavenly home. Amen. David recognizes the prophecy in the promise. But this last sentence is a little confusing. And I, I found, by the way, reading especially through the writings of Samuel and Nathan and Gad that we have in First and Second Samuel, I've noticed every now and then a sentence will come along and we kind of go, "Whoa, Huh? Can't trip over it because it's a little awkward and we don't understand what it means. And this is one of those. End of verse 19. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. What? What are you talking about, Dave? Well, first of all, the word custom there is literally law. This is the law of man, O God. Okay, what are you saying, David? What is the law of man? In this context, and listen close, the law of man is the love that God is showing David. David is recognizing this amazing blessing, this outpouring of God's graciousness and His love, and he's saying, that's the law. That's it right there. Kyle and Delich, a couple of uh, German commentators from the 1800s, wrote some great stuff on the Old Testament, and they said this. They said, When the Lord God, in His treatment of poor mortals follows the rule which he has laid down for the conduct of men one towards another, when he shows himself kind and affectionate, this must fill with adoring amazement those who know themselves and know their God. Still not sure what this law of God is? Matthew 22, verse 35, a lawyer asked Jesus a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And Jesus is speaking truth, obviously, but he draws all the way back to Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. Let me read that to you. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so when David says, this is the law of man, O Lord God, he is saying in essence, I am in awe because you are fulfilling what you've called on us to do. You're loving me the way you've called me to love you're being neighbor to me in the way I'm supposed to be neighbor to other people and it blows David's mind because this is God we're talking about now it shouldn't be surprising to us that God would do good loving things because we're on this side of the cross and we understand that God is love incarnate but in David's day God was God now David was on to something more than I think anybody else in his generation and that's that God was a passionate loving father but David's saying this is just incredible. Because God being God doesn't have to do anything for man. He can do whatever he wants. And yet, the Lord obeys his own law that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because God is love. First John 4, 7 Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Why should I love you? Why should I honestly? What have you done for me lately? Pat, have you washed my car in the last year? (laughs) Michelle, have you vacuumed my home recently? (laughs) Jeff, have you paid my bills? I mean, come on, guys. Why should I love you? Because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He's the reason we love. You're not the reason I love you. God is. And I'm not the reason you love me. God is, which is very comforting to me. Because if I was the reason you loved me, I wouldn't be getting a whole lot of love. But God is love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or erasure of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so that's what David's saying. This is the law of man, oh Lord God. To do like you do. You don't tell us to love, you love us. And we respond to that. Well David goes on, and he is literally coming to the point of speechlessness. I love this, this poetic and prolific David. Again, what more can David say to you? I got no words. He finds a few. He says... For you know your servant, O Lord God. He says, For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel? And I believe we can continue to say that today, by the way. What nation on the earth is like your people Israel? What nation has survived longer than Israel? What nation has continued longer than Israel? What nation revived the dead language? What nation came alive in a day as Israel has? David was on to something here too. What nation on earth is like your people Israel whom God went to redeem for Himself as a people and to make a nation for Himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people how long? Forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. And therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever, and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. He's just praying back to God what God has already told him. He's praying the promises of God. It's a very good thing to do. Great way to pray. Verse twenty eight Now, O Lord God, oh you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now before now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue. Forever before you For you O Lord God has spoken And with your blessing May the house of your servant Be blessed forever Four times Five times actually Five times in this section David cries out Forever And again he's repeating The promise God had already given Forever Ten times In this section In David's response He refers to himself as Your servant Your servant, he repeats back to the Lord in prayer. Your servant, as he repeats the words that he had received. Your servant. And that's the deal. The servant of the Lord looks to serve in God's kingdom forever. Now I've heard this horrible statement said that it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And the only person who could say something like that is a complete idiot. (laughs) Because the reality is there is no reigning in hell. The only reigning in hell is the reigning of fire and brimstone. But to serve in heaven, to serve in the courts of the Lord, to be a, a servant of Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what, there's not one of us who has a job of any worth or value that even compares to being a servant of the Lord. And David says it ten times, I am your servant, I am your servant, I am your servant. The servant of the Lord looks forward to serve in the kingdom. Of the Lord forever and this is the man after God's own heart and I want you to hear this closely as we close out I think this is very practical in fact I think it's key to us handling life and dealing with the difficulties that come our way rather than mourning the loss of my occasional and temporary plans I have a choice to rejoice in the promises of a kingdom yet to come and that's how you do it when you set your course a certain direction and nothing works and you're butting your head against the wall and it's not happening the way you planned it the way you wanted it to go you can sit there frustrated or angry or caught up in the angst of life or you can step back and go praise the Lord the kingdom's coming praise God I get to serve in the kingdom and no matter what happens in my life now the kingdom is coming Jesus is returning And I've got a spot in the kingdom If you read Revelation You're more than a servant You're priests and and rulers in the kingdom Part of the holy government I mean it's astounding The Lord says I'll serve you I mean this just freaks me out The Lord says I'm going to come up And I'm going to serve you David says I want to build you a house And God says let me build you one It will be better. And it will last forever. By the way, think about this. The house that David designed and gathered all the materials for. He didn't build it himself. He was a warrior king. There was blood on his hands. Solomon built that first temple. And it lasted a few hundred years until Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed it. On the 9th of August, 586 B.C. Well, it got rebuilt when the people returned from Babylonian captivity. Although the Bible tells us that as it was rebuilt, the people gathered around, and while the young men praised the Lord for it, the old men wept because it was nothing like the original Temple of Solomon. Then Herod came along down the line, and he said, hey, let's let's do something with this. Herod was an architectural genius. He was a madman. Ridiculous in his life, but he built some great stuff, and so he built the temple, and it was magnificent to the point where the apostles said, Lord, look at this, isn't it just amazing? And, and Jesus said, Yeah, it's nice, but not one stone is going to remain upon another. And on the 9th of Av, same date in the year AD 70, the Jewish temple was destroyed a second time, it couldn't stand it couldn't last such is the type of house that we would attempt to build for the Lord a destructible house but when the Lord builds the house in your life when the Lord brings about his eternal plan in you and in me it's indestructible the Hebrew writer says we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken nobody can do anything to it no one can hurt it That's the kingdom I'm called to serve in. So my temporary plans, big deal. If they go up in smoke, let them go. The kingdom's coming, and I am going to be part of it. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And I believe this is the key to, to joyful living, and that's keeping a weather eye to our service in the coming kingdom. Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom. First. And His righteousness and all these other things they'll be added to you. I mean it's so funny to me that the last part of that verse sounds so insignificant. All these other things. I'm not even going to list them because they don't really matter much. But they'll they'll be added. They'll be taken care of. You seek the kingdom. And you seek His righteousness. And you will have an everlasting home.